0: That Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make Walters your spot to watch the Capitals march to the Stanley Cup. Plenty of TVs and beer selections.
1: Game six is Friday night at 730 as the Caps are on the brink of elimination. Plus, Walters has every NBA playoff game as well. We're driven by the search
2: for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: Now the kick and the pitch on the way. Swung on, hit a mile high to deep left field. Hernandez back looking up. It's going, going, and gone goodbye. A two-run homer for Pete Alonso. Not a good start for the Nationals here tonight at the top of the first inning. Three on the board for New York. It's the Mets, three of the Nationals, nothing. Now McGill ready. Here's the pitch. Soto swings, belts it high in the air to deep right center. Way back goes Marte to the wall, looking up, go! the set of the one two swing and a line drive a base head over the shortstop Lindor rounding third heading home is Ruiz throw to the plate is cut off by the first baseman Smith and D Strange Gordon has his first RBI of the year Ruiz home with a fifth run of the inning it's now the Nationals five and the Mets three the kick in the pitch swing and a high fly ball deep left center field nimble back way back going going and Zoom goes Nelson Cruz with a three-run homer,
0: and the Nationals now lead by the score of eight to three. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, May twelfth, two thousand twenty-two, along with MassinSports.com Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. For just the fourth time in sixteen home games for the Nats this season, we have a Nats win, uh, an eight-three win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on Wednesday night, and. Game two of a three-game series. Nats this season now 11-21 and 21 overall. And what a strange game for the Nats this was. The Nats for the game, eight runs, 10 hits, four walks. You like that. But all eight of the runs and nine of the 10 hits happened over the first two innings. The Nats scored five runs in the bottom of the first, three runs in the bottom of the second. Offense did very little the rest of the game, but the offense didn't need to do much the rest of the game. You know, Mark, we have that saying, right? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. For the Nats on Wednesday night, it was how they started and not how they finished.
1: Well, not exactly how they started started because the first four batters of the game were about the worst case, like disaster scenario you could draw up. But as soon as they got over that, yeah, I mean, I've seen teams come back. I've seen them come back before. Certainly a 3 nothing deficit, is not the end of the world. The first inning, I don't know if I've ever seen them come back that quickly, that emphatically. And then the rest of the game literally features no runs scored by either team. It was a truly bizarre way to do it. And they needed this one. Let's, let's be honest. It was a nine-game home losing streak. It had been 22 days since their last win at home. That one was on April 19th, when they beat the Diamondbacks 1-0, if you can think all the way back to that, it has been a while. They needed one in a way like this where they got big hits from a lot of guys, including a couple key players, got lockdown pitching and never really even let the Mets threaten to come back. So that's a nice win and something they sorely needed.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we know that the Nets aren't very good this season, but they had really been bad at home. And, you know, in a season in which you're trying to – sell some tickets, right, and have some kind of an atmosphere at games at Nationals Park. It's tough when you go into a game like this on Wednesday night, 3-12 and at home. I mean, that's bad. That's really bad. Nats actually have not been that bad on the road this season, had been really bad at home. You'd like to give your ticket-paying fans reason to feel good about their experience. So it's nice that the Nats did this on Wednesday night. You know, it's interesting. The Nats, Mark, have scored 135 runs this season. 25 of the 135 runs have come in the first innings of games. Uh, that works out to 18.5% of the Nats' runs coming in the first innings of games. Now, historically speaking, the first inning is the highest scoring inning in games. This is part of the rationale behind the whole thing of going with openers. But it, it does stand out. I mean, for, you know, the, the Nats, they've had their offensive problems this season. We've talked about that. But they actually have done a pretty good job of scoring early in games. It's what's happened, I guess, later in games that's been the issue. But this has been an offense that actually has done a pretty decent job of striking in the first innings of games.
1: Yeah, and what you've seen is Cesar Hernandez has been doing a decent job as a leadoff man. He's hitting, what, 285 now for the season after another three-hit game and also drew a walk in this one. You have Soto, of course, who's always a threat. Josh Bell has been fantastic. Nelson Cruz has been pretty cold, although over the last few nights, he's finally started to heat up, and that's a good sign. So, I mean, they have guys hitting at the top of their lineup that you would think should be able to do some damage. And to their credit, they took down Tyler McGill uh, tonight, and McGill is the guy who shut them out on opening day and had been phenomenal every start since then. For the Mets, he had given up a total of nine runs in all of his starts combined, and he ends up giving up eight and only an inning and a third in this one. So, credit to them. They came right back after the early 3 nothing deficit, put the pressure on, and kept the pressure on, and knocked out a pretty good starting pitcher. To turn this really, I mean, remarkably, a game they were down early. They turned into a, a comfortable win.
0: Yeah, McGill came into this game on Wednesday night, six starts this season, ERA at 243, ERA plus a 158. I mean, he had been outstanding this year, and the Nats took it to him. McGill on Wednesday night, eight runs in one into third innings. It was like batting practice. And then once he got taken out of the game, that was kind of it. Like, the, you know, it's odd. You'd say like you don't want a guy with a 243 ERA staying in the game. It's like if you're the Nats, you wanted him in there because the Nats were uh, smacking balls all over the yard. Well, you mentioned Nelson Cruz. I mean, I guess if we're going to start anywhere with this Nats offense to start with him, we've been begging for old Nelly to get going this season. And, you know, I think it's too early to say that he's gotten going, but maybe he has gotten going. We'll see. It'll be kind of a, a retroactive gotten going depending on what happens here moving forward, but Nelson Cruz on Wednesday night, one for three with a three-run homer in the walk, and the three-run homer was your vintage Nelson Cruz home run. It came in that Nats three-run second inning. A went out three-run homer on a shot to left center field for an 8-3 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 436 feet per stat cast, and then Cruz in the bottom of the fourth drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference was talking up Nelson Cruz, you know, like taking a better approach to some recent plate appearances.
4: Now he's starting to swing swing the bat. I mean, he's, he's hitting the ball the other way. He's getting the ball in the air.
0: We know that he likes to proclaim people back maybe sooner than they are back. But you know what? Maybe Nelson Cruz is back. We'll see. But man, that's the kind of thing we've been waiting on from Nelson Cruz. That's a Nelson Cruz homer we saw on Wednesday night.
1: That was vintage Nelson Cruz. Best ball he's hit all year long. I mean, that ball landed in the picnic tables, which are behind the red seats out in left center field. It's only a handful of guys that have hit that over the years. I remember Michael Morse, I think, had the longest of them actually to the back of those picnic tables, almost up to the restaurant, but very few reached that territory, and that was a majestic Nelson Cruz homer, and you know that it felt good for him, of course. Now, there have been signs, Uh, I think, over the last several days with him. He homered on Saturday in Anaheim, even though he struck out four times in that game, was drawing some walks, starting to hit the ball a little harder, had a couple of hits in the series opener. So there have been signs of it coming around. And then obviously this is the biggest of them all, but you need to see it a little bit more, of course, but some decent indications that he is starting to figure it out. Not chasing pitches out of the zone the way he was, not hitting those ground balls that he was for so long there, you know, to a ridiculous, as we talked about, career, you know, high extent, something like 55% ground ball rate, which was insane. So he's starting to get some elevation on him, not chasing pitches. Even the outs are coming in the air. A lot of good signs. You need to see it for more than four or five days, whatever it's been. But maybe we are seeing finally him turning that corner and maybe he's not the lost cause that some of us were worried. Maybe he was, you know, only a week ago.
0: Yeah. And it was really nice to see him and Juan Soto do damage on Wednesday night, you know, because that's what we envisioned going into the season. Like, yes, Josh Bell, too. But like Soto and Cruz, Cruz and Soto, like that was a very enticing one-two punch that the Nats had in their lineup. And we haven't seen much of it this season, largely because of Cruz. Although Soto came into this game having been in a mini slump. Previous four games, just three for 17 with three singles and one walk, well, he was a big part of that Nats five-run first on Wednesday night. A two-run homer to right field to cut the Nats deficit to 3-2. That homer going a projected 411 feet per stat cast. That was Soto's seventh homer of the season, his first non-solo home run For the first time this year, we can say that Juan Soto has hit a non-solo homer. That is bizarre, the way this played out. I mean, you know, it's not really his fault. I know he has had Issues with runners in scoring position. But, geez, six home runs entering this game this season, all of them solo shots. Finally gets a multi-person home run uh, in that first inning on Wednesday night.
1: And he didn't want to, you know, make a big deal out of that or too big of a deal out of it because you don't want to make it seem like that's been bothering you. But I think it has been bothering him. And I thought it was interesting in his post-game with us, he kind of casually threw in there a line about how, well, you know, this is what happens when you're the number two hitter on a team. So, it's in his head a little bit as number two hitter, maybe not coming up as often with runners in scoring position, uh, maybe not able to deliver and produce the RBIs that we've talked about you would typically expect from a number three hitter. He's happy to contribute any way that he can. You know that it had to feel good for him to finally connect on a ball with a guy on base and uh, add not just one to his RBI total, but two. But I I thought it was a little interesting. Nobody prompted it. He kind of threw out that subtle little jab at the fact that he's hitting second, and that could be a byproduct of hitting second is fewer RBI.
0: I guess I'm a little surprised that this would be that big of a deal to him. Again, I, I brought this up in a recent episode. Like, look around baseball, man. All the great hitters, or so many of them, are batting in the two spots. Like, you know, I mean, I, I trust what you're saying. It may well be weighing on him. I wonder if Boris is in his ear on – that sounds like a Scott Boris kind of a thing. Like, it's going to reduce your money, big man. That You're not getting all the ribbies that you're supposed to be getting. But – Uh, yeah, whatever,
1: dude. They're human beings, okay, right? Like, we can think to ourselves, okay, it doesn't really make a difference where you're hitting in the order. And here's all the rational reasons why hitting second could be better for you. And look at all these other guys who do it around the league, some of the best hitters. Of course. But if it's something you're not necessarily used to doing, and in your mind you think of yourself as a certain type of hitter and you've grown up your whole life being a number 3 hitter because you were the best hitter on your team by far, everywhere he's ever been, like I can see how that would at least be somewhere in the recesses of his mind. And even if rationally he knows it doesn't matter subconsciously, it might be somewhere in there and causing him to approach this a little differently. I I don't think they're moving him anytime soon. I think Davies seems perfectly satisfied with how this is set up. But I thought it was interesting because he did mention it and none of us brought that up.
0: Yeah, uh, I think the fact that he brought it up unsolicited is telling. I mean, I don't I don't think that that's nothing. It probably is there, but hopefully he gets used to it. And like we've said, I mean, he has struggled with runners in scoring position. He could have more runs batted in had he done more in his opportunities that he has had. But he now has 10 RBI on the year, so he can pat himself on the back for that. You know, he's got an 871 OPS. I mean, again, it's all relative with this guy, right? By normal person standards, He's having a very good season. By Juan Soto standards, you have these little nits that you like to pick. But, like, overall, you know, after Josh Bell, and if you want to say Yadiel Hernandez, who's come up to hit a lot less, I mean, Juan Soto's been one of the Nats' best hitters so far this season.
1: Yeah, no, of course. And the bar has been set so high that. We just expect almost perfection from him. And he's okay with that, because I think he expects it from himself, too. He has a very high standard for himself. So even though we can all look at it and say, hey, you're still having a pretty good season... I don't think he's going to look at it that way. He always is looking for ways to be better and do more. And that's great. That's what you need in a superstar player. That's what makes them the very best of the best is they're never satisfied. They never want to give you anything less than 100% of what they're capable of. But this is another game where he hits a homer and draws a walk. That's the Juan Soto game, homer and a walk. And he's still done that a bunch of times this year. It's just that the homers haven't been quite as meaningful because of when they've been hit and how few guys have been on base.
0: I want to subpoena Soto's cell phone. I guarantee you Boris has been texting Soto about batting (laughs) in that two spot. I promise you that. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons,
2: 3 2 to Hernandez. Swinging a line drive, base hit right field between Guillorme and Smith. And Cesar Hernandez, after having his hitting streak snapped at 12, has had a little bit of up and down. He went 0 for 5 on Saturday with two strikeouts, and he went 3 for 5 on Sunday. Last night he went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, and today he's 3 for 3.
0: You mentioned Cesar Hernandez. He got on base four times on Wednesday night. Nice job by him. Three for four, three singles and a walk. Uh, Hernandez, uh, he was the igniter for those two big innings for the Nats. He in the five-run first had a leadoff single to right field despite having been down to the count of 1.02. He in the Nats three-run second had a leadoff opposite field single to left center field. He in the bottom of the third had a one-out full count single to right field. And he in the bottom of the eighth drew a two-out eight-pitch walk despite... Having been down in that count at 1.02. I mean, we've talked about Hernandez. He gets singles. He doesn't get extra base hits. He doesn't draw walks, but he is batting 285. It's an odd profile for him. The on base is just 324, but the batting average is 285. If you go by qualified Nats players, he's number two on the Nats in batting average on the season. Bell is number one at 349. Hernandez is number two at 285. So it's kind of like you got to take in a lot when you're analyzing the year that Hernandez is having. But if you're just talking about Wednesday night, I mean, he did his job, got on base four times and got those two big innings for the Nats going.
1: Well, what's funny is you remember going into the year, we talked about how he hit a career high 20 homers last season and maybe he shouldn't hit leadoff because he actually can hit for power. And Davey Martinez is telling him, hey, don't worry about the home runs. We need you to get on base. That's your job. Well, he hasn't hit a home run yet (laughs) this year. He's become a singles hitter again. And it's You know, maybe on this team, that's what they need him to be, but it is a little strange. I mean, this is a very different hitter than he was last year in Chicago and Cleveland. I suppose right now it's working. He is getting on for Juan Soto and Josh Bell, and that's a good thing from your leadoff hitter. But it does feel like there is some pop in there that we just haven't seen yet. And I don't know if it's by design that he's not trying to do that, or if he's just not hitting the ball as well as he has in the past.
0: You know, speaking of like odd statistical profiles, Hernandez's 2021 20, was odd. So he hit the career high 21 homers. Yes. He also only slugged 386. It was one of the poor slugging percentages of his career. So it's a good case study in like you can hit a lot of homers but actually still not be a very good power hitter. He wasn't a good power hitter last year, but he did hit those 21 homers. So yeah, I mean, I got what Davey was talking about when he earlier well, not even earlier this season, but going into the season, talked about, you know, I want Cesar Hernandez to be the leadoff guy. And he has had some good on-base percentage seasons in his career, 2020, 355, 2018, 356, 2017, 373. So he's capable of getting on base, hasn't gotten on base at a great clip so far this year. I wonder if maybe that does start to come. But yeah, I mean, to me, if his hits homers, grade. You really just want to see him be a guy who's getting on base at a higher rate than what he's done so far this year. Now, the singles are a part of that. I think the big thing for him is to try to draw some walks. He's he's drawn six walks the entire year. He's the leadoff guy. He's played in 32 games. It's like we'd, we'd like to see a few more walks than six over 32 games.
1: Yeah. Well, he finally got one in the bottom of the eighth <laughs> of this game uh, after singling in the first three innings, which is also unusual. So, it's a fine balance because if you are feeling good and you're making good contact and you're you know producing hits as he has, then the tendency is to want to be aggressive and not work the count too much and not just put it in the hands of the umpire or anything like that. But a little more selectivity wouldn't be bad and whatever it takes, whether it's a bunch of... Hits and he's, you know, a 310 hitter with a 350 on base percentage or he's a 280 hitter with more walks and a 350 on base percentage. Whatever you got to do to get on base is good. And however, he can figure out how to do that is what they need him to do.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. However you get there is fine. Uh, A lot of Nats got in on the act on Wednesday night. k Ruiz, two for four with an RBI single and another single as he was the Nats starting catcher for the first time in three games. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez, one for three with a double and a walk. Josh Bell, 1-for-3, had a single and a hit-by-pitch. D-Strange Gordon uh, was helping out, 1-for-4 with an RBI single. He was the guy who capped the Nats' five-run first, a two-out RBI single to shallow left center on a 1-2 pitch for a 5-3 Nats lead. So no Alcides Escobar for a second consecutive game. I read the uh, updated description of what's going on with his hand uh, I, I don't know that we need to get uh, too much into detail here. It's a bit of a TMI situation, but this sounds like a nasty ordeal that he's dealing with, with his, this uh, finger-slash-hand situation.
1: Yeah, it's an infection under his uh, pointer finger nail, the fingernail. And the finger's swollen, they had to drain some fluids from it and still looks a little nasty. The hope is that he's ready to go on uh, Thursday. But it's a quick turnaround with a day game, so I don't know, maybe not. D. Strange Gordon did well on uh Wednesday to fill in for him. So maybe give him another shot there. I thought that was a big hit by him, that last RBI single to complete the five-run rally. You know, They come back, they've now tied the game pretty incredible in itself after the way that it started in the top of the first. But to be able to keep it going and immediately take the lead right back, I thought significant. So you had Franco with the sacrifice fly uh, for the fourth run, D-Strange Gordon with the RBI single for the fifth run. That was big. And then I want to talk real quick earlier. Did you pick up on Yadiel Hernandez's doubles and Nelson Cruz is coming around first and around second and towards third? And everybody's looking at Gary DeSharsina. And this time he put up the stop sign. There was a chance you maybe you, you would see him try to go for it. And if it's a different runner, maybe he would have. But he held up Cruz. And wouldn't you know, the next batter, Ruiz, RBI single. It worked out. Sometimes it's okay to be a little more cautious on the bases, and trust the guy behind you to deliver, especially in that case with uh, only one out. So that was a good job there by Gary DeSarcena. Maybe learned his lesson from a few times earlier in the year.
0: Yeah, I did notice that. And actually, during the game, Masson put up the graphic coming into Wednesday. The Nats were tied for last in the majors in terms of most times having had a runner thrown out at home plate this season. I wondered about that on the last installment of the podcast. Seven was the number. and The Nats were tied with, I think, uh, one other team. So that's bad. I mean, that, that doesn't look good when you have something like that. So uh, if some lessons are being learned, then that's a good thing. And it, it paid off. Yeah, you know, it's funny in baseball, right, because you have this concept of the shutdown inning, which is when you score, holding the opposing team to no runs in the following half of an inning. And it, it's kind of an odd thing because baseball isn't like basketball where like your offensive guys can help to prevent the other team from scoring. It's more kind of like pitching is doing the job. So it's like, does a team really – Score one inning and then maintain the momentum in the following bottom half of the inning. But as a fan, as a watcher of the game, it does kind of feel that way sometimes. And so for the Nats to respond, quote unquote, to the Mets scoring those three runs in the top of the first with a five spot in the bottom of the first, that was good to see like an immediate answer to a big first inning. And then to tack on three more in the bottom of the second, you know, again, like this thing of momentum. I mean, I don't I think it gets overstated. But if you're just sort of watching the game unfold, you're down three nothing going into the bottom of the first. You're then up eight three after two. That is a big swing in the game.
1: Right. I said, you know, you get down three nothing in the first. It's not uncommon to come back from that, but you're probably going to chip away at it over the course of the night to get it immediately like that. And not just in the first, but to come right back in the second with the big three-run homer, knock out the opposing starter, it does change the entire vibe. I got to tell you, four batters into this game, the way the Mets scored those three runs with sloppy defense again, a big home run surrendered, the crowd, well, the Nationals portion of the crowd was not feeling it, the Mets portion of the crowd was very much feeling it, and you're thinking, it's going to be a long night here. And so, I do think there's something to be said for flipping that switch in the other direction right away. It's not just that they came back you know, later in the game, but to do it right away, they seized back control of that game. And for that, give credit to the lineup and give credit to Aaron Sanchez, who looked to be on path to a terrible start and wound up putting together a very solid start in the end.
0: Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It's graduation season, and so that means it is Window Nation's graduation sale. If your old windows are failing or just not making the grade, here's a homework assignment. Call Window Nation and get to the head of the class with 0% financing for 5 full years, 60 months, and get 2 free windows with every 2 that you buy. Window Nation windows are the best. They are made right here locally in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. Over 1,500 custom window combinations are available. Vinyl, wood, fiberglass. Price quotes are valid for six months. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation That Al Galdi sent you. You know, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over 60 million dollars. On energy bills, call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask Window Nation for the graduation sale that you heard about from Al Galdi. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and get the special offer. Mention my name, Al Galdi, when you talk to Window Nation.
3: He comes set in the pitch, swinging a ground ball toward the middle, fielded by D. Strange. Gordon to the back himself for the out. In time. And a curly W's in the books.
0: The final score, the Washington Nationals 8, the New York Mets 3. Aaron Sanchez on Wednesday night, three runs in five into third innings, but there's so much more to his outing than just that final line. Uh, He gave up six hits, a homer, a double, and four singles. He issued no walks. He recorded Just one strikeout. He again threw a lot of strikes. I tell you, this is one thing about Sanchez that is impressive. Start in and start out. He pounds the zone. Sanchez on Wednesday night, 75 pitches, 51 strikes versus 24 balls. So he gave up three runs in the top of the first, but he then ended up retiring 15 of the next 17 batters he faced and he got knocked out of the game by being struck by a one-out first-pitch line drive off the bat of Pete Alonso in the top of the six. It sounds like Sanchez is going to be just fine, but you know, I wonder how much longer Sanchez might have stayed in the game had he not gotten struck by the line drive. But it's interesting to me that Pete Alonso was the guy who hit Sanchez with that line drive. Pete Alonso is the new Freddie Freeman. He's really emerging now as a Nationals killer. So Alonso had the big blow in that three-run Mets first, a one-out, two-run home run to left field to give the Mets a 3-0 lead. Alonso now has 18 career homers against the Nats, and he's hit some big ones against the Nats. So they've had a hard time with him there. Um, and then the other thing with the top of the first, and you mentioned the sloppy defense. So Sanchez gives up a first-pitch bunt single to Starling Marte, on which Michael Franco commits a throwing error. Uh, Brandon Nimmo ends up scoring on the play to give the Mets a 1-0 lead. Uh, Nimmo got on, for, uh, got on base. By coming through with a leadoff opposite field double through the left side of the Nats infield on a shift. So that was a unique play. And also on that play with some sloppy defense, Yadiel Hernandez had trouble picking up the ball with his glove. He like dropped the ball uh, with his glove. So there was a lot going on. Uh, in that first inning. But with Sanchez, do you think he would have stayed in the game for much longer had he not gotten struck by the line drive?
1: Probably not. And I wonder if that was part of the discussion. He was trying to say he could stay in the game. And I think Davey was almost feeling like, hey, you know what? You just got us to the sixth inning after that awful top of the first and didn't go up anything else. Like, let's just get you out of here and let's go to the bullpen. Now, they didn't have anybody warming previously at that point. So he would have had to be in there for several more batters uh, regardless, because it's not like anybody was Warm and ready to come in at that point. But I think that was certainly going to be his last inning, either way, the sixth. To his credit, you know, he gets through the third, the fourth, and the fifth on a total of 37 pitches. Three innings on 37 pitches is outstanding. Um, So he really did pound the strike zone, was getting outs with weak contact, didn't walk anybody. The team did not walk anybody the entire night. That was the first words out of Davey's mouth when he walked into the press conference room afterwards. He was thrilled with that because it's been such an issue for them, especially for their relievers. I want to go back to how they scored those three runs. Nimmo, you called the double and said Yadiel had some trouble with in left field. He did. What I didn't like, and we didn't really get to ask about this afterwards because it was such an afterthought in the end, but I thought it was going to be a big deal. They start the game with the infield regularly positioned for Nimmo. And then once they got two strikes on him, Michael Franco then moved over into the shift onto the right side of the infield, and they have three infielders over there, and the whole left side is wide open. And from my vantage point, I could see exactly what Brandon Nimmo was trying to do. He's choking up on the bat, and he's just trying to make contact, and he hit it exactly where they ain't. And the pitch happened to be an outside pitch, which is the last place you should be throwing that. He bought himself a, a double right there. The Nats kind of gave it to him. And I don't entirely understand. Like, If you're going to play the shift, okay, go for it. But I, I don't love the within an individual at bat changing it and saying, well, now there's two strikes, so we don't care if he bunts or if he tries to go the opposite field. I think they just handed him a guy like that who has good back control. Other hitters, maybe not. But a guy like that, you just handed him a single and turned out to be a double. And then the very next play, Marte bunts and Franco throws it away. And so even before he ever got to the home run, I felt like you've set yourself up for disaster here when it didn't necessarily have to be that way.
0: When the Nats shift, who is signaling to shift? Is that Davey Martinez or is that somebody else?
1: No, I think it is either Tim Bogar or Gary DeSarcina in the dugout. They're both the infield coaches and do that. So, But they go into it with a strategy. Like They know on this hitter, here's where we're going to play. And even in some of those cases once we get to two strikes, then we're going to do this or that. They may change it within the course of an at-bat. They're not the only ones who do this. I've seen other teams do it. Something about that, though, I don't know why, but it just kind of bothers me, the idea of you don't want to shift at the beginning of an at-bat because you're saying, well, we don't want them to give up a bunt single or don't want them just to get a cheap hit that way. But once you get to two strikes, now you're going to change that philosophy? Like, go after it. And then, on top of all that, like I said... You're going to go into the shift, and then you throw a pitch on the outside corner, just encouraging him to hit the ball the other way. It just seems so counterintuitive to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, unless they have data that suggests with two strikes, you know, Nimmo is even more apt to hit the ball to the right side. I mean, you know, it's it's always tricky because you you don't know what they have. A lot of teams have, like, proprietary information that we don't have. But, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And it certainly played out in a way in which Nimmo just, like, Bought himself a double, like poked the ball there, and it, it was right there to be had, no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, Sanchez, it, it was kind of a hard luck deal with the Nimmo double and then the bunt single. Of course, the Alonso homer, uh, that was just a, a brutal blow delivered by Alonso. but Sanchez then was better. And, you know, the overall numbers for Sanchez aren't great. This was his fourth start. Uh, the Nats uh, called him up from AAA Rochester on April 23rd. But, you know, he's posting for these starts. And like I said, he is throwing strikes. If you go through his previous three outings, Uh, His first start for the Nats, 43 of 64 pitches for strikes. His second start, 51 of 71 pitches for strikes. His third start, 56 strikes versus 28 balls. Like, he's doing a good job in that regard. He doesn't strike guys out, okay? He's not lasting for very long into games. He is a reclamation project. I mean, you know, it kind of feels like he's just here to tread water and buy time until a Cade Cavalli or somebody else is ready to go. But The Nats are getting some mileage out of him. And it's not like when he starts, you feel like there's no chance. Like you feel like you're in the game with him pitching for you. And so uh, I think he at least deserves credit for that.
1: Yeah, he's giving them a chance. Like you said, that's all you can ask for in that role. But let's be honest, he is a placeholder in all likelihood, unless he just started pitching so well that he forces the issue and and says, hey, I actually can be a part of this, um, you know, in the long term. I don't think they necessarily view him that way. He has given them more of a chance than Josh Rogers did. When he was starting. Rogers had his issues, as we know, he's had struggles against right-handed batters. But I'll I'll be interested to see here, you know, we're still a ways away from Steven Strasberg and Joe Ross being ready. Cade Cavalli has his ups and downs. I don't sense that they're, you know, itching to call him up. So for now, they kind of have their five-man rotation and not a whole lot of reason to make any changes. But there's going to come a point here somewhere within the next month where somebody is going to be ready, if not more than one person is going to be ready to join the rotation. And then who do they decide to make the moves with at that point? You would think Sanchez would probably be the first on the chopping block there, as opposed to like a Johanna Doan, who they do like and they want to see develop. Uh, and Eric Fetty, who has got more history in the organization. So if you are Aaron Sanchez... You have to look at this as treating every starter like it could be your last and force the issue, make them want to keep you in there and not be able to uh, sacrifice that spot. If he gives them a reason to dump him when the time comes, then that's what they're going to do because they're not really invested in him.
0: Yeah, and he's not a guy who in any way profiles as a reliever. So he's either a starter or he's not with you. And maybe he can look at it as he's auditioning for other teams. You know, he could sort of frame things that way. So with Cade Cavalli, he did pitch on Wednesday. Uh two runs, one earned in five and two thirds innings in a three two Rochester Red Wings victory at the Worcester Red Sox. Uh Cavalli had six strikeouts versus one walk. I mean, You know He's not killing it for AAA Rochester. He's had some good outings. He's also had some rough outings. The overall numbers aren't great. I know that when you're deciding on whether to call up an uber prospect, it's not just about bottom line stats. You look at the peripherals. You look at the stuff, things of that nature. But six starts for Cavalli for AAA Rochester this season. He has an ERA of 618, uh, 25 strikeouts in 27 and two-thirds innings, and he has issued 12 walks. So, The results have been mixed. He's not forcing the Nats hand on this. It's kind of like he's there. He's developing. But this isn't like a banging on the door situation. This is more like I think you want to see more before you call him up, because like you said, they want to call him up and have him stay up as opposed to calling him up and then shipping him down.
1: Yeah, you want to see a nice run of consecutive three, four starts in a row where it's all coming together and he sort of forces the issue to bring him up. They're not in a position right now where they feel like they have to, and that's good. They're getting enough from the others that they don't feel pressured to do it. You want to make sure that when it happens, it's for the right reasons. It's because he's earned it. So far, he isn't there. Obviously, there's glimpses there. Obviously, he has all the skills and everything else you want to suggest he's going to be a good big league starter, but you don't have to do that until he's truly ready. And I just got to go back to one other thing there. What did you say the name of the town was where the Red Sox AAA team plays? Worcester. Come on, Al. Even I'm not from New England. Even I know how they say it there. Worcester.
0: Oh, it's Worcester. Worcester. Oh, you got me on that one.
1: Come on.
0: Well, I'm learning doing this podcast. It's good.
1: <laughs> I have no New England connection. Even I know it's Worcester.
0: Worcester. All right. So you learned something new doing this podcast. By the way, speaking of Nat's prospects, Cole Henry for AA Harrisburg over five starts has an ERA of 0.57. Do you think it's at all possible Henry would get called up this year? I mean, I'm sure they want to have him pitch a AAA at some point, but he is killing it for Harrisburg so far this
1: year. He's been on my radar all along as somebody that I think we are going to see before it's all said and done. Now, they're not going to rush him, of course. Pretty accomplished, a number two draft pick, you know, a little step behind Cavalli, maybe in terms of experience and in terms of dominance, but profiles to be potentially a front of the rotation kind of starter. And yeah, they're very excited about him. I wouldn't be surprised he keeps this up at double A. He gets the promotion to triple A. Now you see, kind of like Cavalli last year, how does he do with the more advanced hitters at that level if he has some success? Yeah, I definitely think he's somebody we could see later this season. Remember, they called a donut real quick without a whole lot of experience in the upper levels of the minor league, so they're not afraid to do it if they think he's ready. I've been very interested to hear uh, how this guy does and very interested to ultimately see him pitch up here. We're so far away from this. Who knows how it's all going to play out. But if they get to September and you've got a rotation that includes Cavalli, Gray, Henry, and Adone, I mean, that's where they should be. I mean, that's where you want them to be organizationally. And then Strasburger, Ross or Fetty, whoever the other one is, Corbin, But if you've got four potential building blocks in your rotation by the end of this season and they have at least some amount of success, that's a huge win in my book. Now, who knows? They may not all pan out. Injuries can happen. A lot of stuff can happen between now and then. But that's not out of the realm of possibility that we reach a point where that does happen this year.
0: Yeah. And that's what you want. I I think it's interesting, though, because Cavalli was lights out at double A and then over his time at AAA, starting last year into this year, has not been lights out. So I think you do need to see Henry pitch well at A if you're just going to call him up. But he has been spectacular for Harrisburg so far this year. Uh, good night for the Nats bullpen on Wednesday night. Three relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings. Austin Voth, one and a third scoreless innings. Victor Rano one and a third scoreless innings with two strikeouts. And Paolo Espino tosses scoreless top of the ninth despite uh, beginning it by giving up back-to-back singles. Austin Voth now has not allowed a run in each of his last seven appearances. So, you know, we know that Austin Voth can be up and he can be down. He has been up lately. He's looked good. Davy Martinez has been going to Voth a lot, and uh, he has been delivering on that.
1: He's had good life on his fastball. He has been pitching in some higher leverage spots. That's been good. It was really nice to see how all three of them came out after Sanchez had to leave the game and just kind of shut the door. The only little blip there, the negative of it was: Paulo Espino Ghost has pitched the ninth inning when they're up five runs. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. The last thing Davey Martinez wants to do right now is have to call down to the bullpen and say, get Rainey up and warming, because that means it's getting a little bit dicey. And sure enough, back-to-back singles start the inning, phone call down to the bullpen, and here's Tanner Rainey warming up. Now, it didn't matter in the end. Paolo got three straight outs after that game over. But just those little things that would be nice, especially if they're in a position to use Rainey in the series finale or for the next several days, you hope that that little extra work didn't cost him. But that, that's a minor thing that... For the most part, that was an excellent job by the bullpen. The other thing on the Mets side, this is a, a small win for them and for Buck Showalter. You knock out their starting pitcher in the second inning, and they end up only using two relievers the rest of the game. That doesn't happen very often. So they now have all their other guys for the series finale on Thursday. He'll have his pick of whoever he wants out of the bullpen. You would hope in a perfect world, you knock out the starter that quick, you should force them to have to use four, five, six relievers. Instead, they only use two.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Nats offense really did nothing over the final six innings for the team, you know, third inning through the eighth inning. I mean, it was it was like two different games. It was very odd the way that that played. I mean, it really was Ty McGill. Like he was just wrecked by the Nats. And then once he got out of the game, uh, things for the most part changed. So game three for the Nats against the Mets at Nationals Park Thursday afternoon at 105. Johan Done versus Taiwan Walker. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We got another Steven Strasburg-Joe Ross update. You know, I almost feel like I don't want to keep chasing these things because it's like incremental and, you know, you say, well, what's the latest here? What's the latest there? And then before you know it, a month has passed and neither guy is still at the major league level. But uh, each guy now has thrown a simulated game And it does feel like we are nearing the beginnings of minor league rehab assignments for
1: these guys. Yeah. So they both threw on Monday. I believe it was two innings. I don't have that confirmed. But the report was that everything went well and they're going to do it again either Friday or Saturday. The idea would probably be you'd build up to another inning. So you get three innings there. And if that goes well, we'll see. Maybe they do it one more time. But I would think if you're ready to throw, you know, four innings and 60 pitches, something like that. They may say, hey, let's go send you up to Fredericksburg, let's send you to Wilmington, Harrisburg, wherever it might be, and start a rehab assignment. The key that they want to wait on that is a pitcher has 30 days once you start a rehab assignment before you have to end it and be called up. So that's the, the thing you want to watch for. When they are beginning to pitch in minor league games, they're a month away at most from – returning to the big leagues and maybe less than that. So when you're trying in your head to figure out when they're going to return, I've been looking at somewhere in early June, if everything goes according to plan. So far, it seems like everything has.
0: Yeah. I mean, you just cross your fingers that during the minor league rehab assignment, there isn't the setback because I think that's I don't think that would shock anybody with other guys.
1: And that is why they would keep them in in Florida as long as they can because it's a more controlled environment. So if an inning is getting out of hand in a simulated game, they could say, "Okay, just end it there after 20 pitches, go back to the dugout. Once you're in a real minor league game, if you start building up a pitch count and you've thrown 30 pitches in one inning, you got to stay out there and finish the inning or they have to pull you and now you haven't gotten a chance to actually rehab the way you want to.
0: If you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We continue to welcome your memories of the Nationals' 2012 National League East winning season. You can send us an email detailing what you remember from that season, what you uh, most cherish from that season. You can send us a voice memo as well. Again, the uh, email address is NatsChatPodcast.com at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with this voice memo from Eric in the Dominican Republic with his memories of the Nats 2012 season.
4: Hello, Al, Mark, and Tim. This is Eric Johnson, your faithful listener down in the DR. And I wanted to pass along my favorite 2012 memory, And really, it's the most exciting memory of the whole year, which is that Game 4 walk-off earthquake home run. But let me tell you why it's my favorite, because it actually started back in 2005 when the Nats first came to town. I was working a side job and would uh, listen to Charlie Slows that first season and really just fell in love with the Nats, but especially Charlie, because he was such a great announcer. He really made you feel just a part of the team. And so over those seven-plus seasons where they weren't very good, that 2012 was so special. And even though Game 5 didn't end the way we hoped, Game four was so special. That call, that even as the season was over, and really up until 2019, it was the greatest memory in Nat's history. And I just think the the local radio announcer is so special. And that early on in our in our Nat'sdom, we had a special uh, feeling of every time you hear that, the little hairs on your arms stick up. And so 20. 12. I will always remember Charlie's call of Jason Worth. And that's what I got today.
3: I hope I can steal a little summoning from you, Dave. Three balls, two strikes, the pitch. Swinging along! A-